Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 13 edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A federal judge has blocked the proposed $54 billion merger of two major health insurance companies, Anthem and Cigna, after the Justice Department concluded that the deal would reduce competition in the health insurance market and raise prices. Anthem said that it promptly intends to file a notice of appeal and request an expedited hearing. The Justice Department announced last summer that it would oppose both the Anthem-Sega merger and one by Aetna and Humana. These are four of the major five insurers in the nation. Both mergers have now been blocked in separate federal court cases, citing adverse effects on competition and pricing. Then Attorney General Loretta Lynch said, if allowed to proceed, these mergers would fundamentally reshape the health insurance industry. She added that they would leave much of the multi-trillion dollar health insurance industry in the hands of three mammoth insurance companies, drastically constricting competition in a number of key markets. The California Insurance Commissioner said the ruling was a significant win for consumers. Last year, he held an extensive public hearing on the proposed merger and concluded that the merger was bad for consumers and businesses and bad for health insurance and health care markets. And now our crime report. Team Health Holdings is one of the nation's largest providers of outsourced physician staffing solutions for hospitals. Team Health's approximately 10,000 affiliated healthcare professionals provide emergency medicine, hospital medicine, anesthesia, urgent care, and pediatric staffing and management services to approximately 900 civilian and military hospitals, clinics, and physician groups in 46 states. And Team Health has a growing presence in California. In 2014, it announced the acquisition of the operations of Burbank, California-based Primary Critical Care Medical Group, PCCMG. PCCMG provides clinical services through partnerships with four hospitals and two outpatient primary care clinics in the Southern California market. IPC Healthcare was purchased by Team Health in November 2015. IPC is headquartered in North Hollywood on Lancashire Boulevard. It manages hospitalist practice groups in the San Francisco Bay Area, the Inland Empire, and nationally. Now the Department of Justice just announced that Team Health Holdings, as successor in interest to IPC, has agreed to resolve allegations that IPC violated the law by billing Medicare, Medicaid, and the Defense Health Agency and the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program for higher and more expensive levels of medical service than were actually performed. This practice is known as upcoding. Under the settlement agreement, Team Health has agreed to pay back $60 million plus interest. The government contended that IPC knowingly and systematically encouraged false billings by its hospitalists, who are medical professionals whose primary focus is the medical care of hospitalized patients. The government alleged that IPC encouraged its hospitalists to bill for a higher level of service than actually provided. 
IPC scheme to improperly maximize billings allegedly included corporate pressure on hospitalists with lower billing levels to catch up to their peers. A Northern California chiropractor was arraigned in Sacramento Superior Court on eight felony counts of insurance fraud for his alleged role in a fraud scheme billing for treatment services never provided. The chiropractor is 69-year-old William Ginther of Granite Bay, the former owner of Fort Sutter Chiropractic. The chiropractor and former in-house biller, 58-year-old Pam Rivas of Cameron Park, and 37-year-old office managers Kristen Jones, Hasnali, and Stacy Fellows, both from Sacramento, face seven counts of felony insurance charges. An investigation by Department of Insurance detectives revealed Ginther and his staff billed several insurers for mechanical traction treatments for 50 to 70 patients per day between 2012 and 2015 when no medical traction units were in the office. Insurers reportedly paid over $150,000 to Fort Sutter Chiropractic in fraudulent claims. This case is being prosecuted by the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. Fort Sutter Chiropractic is under new ownership, and Gunther is no longer affiliated with the practice. And in regulatory news, panelists at the Property Casualty 360 Outfront Ideas webinar provided thoughts on workers' compensation issues to watch in 2017. The U.S. Department of Labor under President Obama felt state workers' compensation systems needed reform, and they were prepared to recommend minimum benefit standards to the states. But President Trump's nominee for Secretary of Labor, Andrew Puzder, has been a vocal opponent of many federal labor regulations. So at least for now, any talk of the federal government getting involved in state workers' compensation issues seems to be on hold. Another potential impact of the election results is the direction OSHA may take in 2017 and beyond. In recent years, employers have complained that OSHA was more focused on enforcement than education and training, noting its shift of resources. Recent OSHA policies such as the publicly accessible online database and restrictions on post-injury drug testing were met with significant resistance from the employer community. OSHA falls under the Department of Labor and also is likely to have a new direction under the Trump administration. And workers' compensation market cycles are generally driven by changes in competition more than changes in exposures. Claim costs over the last 20 years have steadily increased, yet premiums during the same period have gone up and down. During the January 1 renewer cycle, rates trended flat or slightly down compared to expiring premiums. Some problem states saw higher rates, including California, New York, Illinois, and Florida. The declining rates compared to increasing claims costs and have caused AMBEST Fitch and others to issue a negative outlook on the workers' compensation marketplace. This hyper-competitive market cycle is expected to end soon as the new entrants into the marketplace start to see the costs of long-tail losses. 
The biggest cost drivers are advances in medical science that increase life expectancies, which in turn increase the exposures for lifetime indemnity and medical benefits. In addition, new drugs and treatments cost more than they were replacing, especially with the cost difference between brand-name drugs and generic medication. Prosthetics are so much more advanced today than they were 10 years ago, but they also cost significantly more money. States have implemented a variety of guideline solutions, which include creating unique formularies and treatment guides and also adopting industry-available workers' compensation guidelines. However, the lack of guideline consensus across stakeholders, including physicians, regulators, payers, and suppliers, is an ongoing challenge to the system. In 2016, elements of the workers' compensation statutes in five states were found to be unconstitutional by each state's respective Supreme Court, including caps on temporary total disability benefits, exclusion of coverage for certain farm workers, caps on attorney fees, time limits for filing cumulative trauma claims, and use of the current edition of the American Medical Association guidelines for impairment ratings. It is likely we will see more constitutional challenges of this nature down the road. There's been quite a bit of negative fallout this year from the August 26th signing of Assembly Bill 2883. This new legislation requires all officers, members, and partners to be covered under the workers' compensation policy unless more restrictive qualifications are now met. Most companies got their first heads up in mid-October, just a couple of months ahead of the January 1 effective date and language delaying the application of the bill for in-force policies was omitted from the text, compounding the problems for employers. This omission, coupled with the narrower definition of who can be excluded from coverage, caused a massive disruption for the industry as a whole. For a corporation, a person must be an officer or director owning at least 15% of issued and outstanding stock to qualify for exclusion and the person must also execute a waiver of rights to workers' comp coverage, certifying under penalty of perjury that they are a qualifying officer or director with the requisite stock ownership. If the business is organized as a partnership or LLC, a person must now be a general partner of a partnership or a managing member of an LLC to qualify for exclusion. There is no minimum amount of ownership required for partnerships. The bill was supported by the American Insurance Association and the Association of California Insurance Companies, who contended the process for opting out of coverage was not clear and led to abuses in the system. In a handful of cases, certain employers gamed the system by claiming that employees with no real stake in the entity were officers, then excluded them from coverage. As is often the case, small to middle market businesses are experiencing the most devastating impact of the new legislation. Previously excludable individuals are covered as of January 1, and premium for those individuals is accumulating. In the worst cases, owners who do not perform strictly office work are being assigned to more costly classification codes. Many small businesses are seeing premiums double now that key employees are no longer excludable. 
At a minimum, employers who exclude individuals from coverage now have additional paperwork to file with their insurance carriers. An article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine section claims the long arm of the pharmaceutical industry continues to pervade practically every area of medicine, reaching those who write guidelines that shape doctors' practices, patient advocacy organizations, and much, much more. Researchers claim that the very way we think about disease and the best ways to research, define, prevent, and treat it is being subtly distorted because so many of the ostensibly independent players, including patient advocacy groups, are largely singing tunes acceptable to companies seeking to maximize markets for drugs and devices. More than two-thirds of patient advocacy organizations that responded to a survey indicated that they had received industry funding in the last fiscal year. For the most, the money represented a small section of their budget, but 12% said they received more than half of their money from the industry. Another example was when the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently developed guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. When the draft guidelines were released, there was criticism. Some organizations argued that the development of the guidelines was not transparent and the recommendations were biased on weak evidence. Subsequently, the CDC postponed the release of the guidelines and opened them up to public comment for a 30-day period. So the researchers analyzed these comments to identify the levels of support for the guidelines and whether financial relationships with opioid manufacturers were associated with opposition to the guidelines. They found that 158 organizations formally submitted comments. And their analysis showed that the organizations that received funding from opioid manufacturers were less supportive of guidelines proposed by the CDC to limit prescribing of the drugs for chronic pain. A leading drug maker ramped up its lobbying of regulators in Canada five-fold last year, urging government officials to enact a rule that would give it an effective monopoly on long-acting narcotic painkillers. This is Purdue Pharma's efforts that came as the government pledged a new attack on the country's deadly opioid crisis. The privately owned maker of the blockbuster OxyContin pushed for a requirement that all long-acting narcotic painkillers known as opioids be made tamper-resistant. The company, which sells the only tamper-resistant long-acting opioids in Canada, met with 40 office holders last year, up from only 8 in 2015 and 3 in 2014. The rule Purdue proposed could edge out companies that don't sell tamper-resistant opioids, including Novartis, Sandoz AG, Johnson & Johnson's Janssen Teva, PharmaScience, and Apotex SA and others. Health Canada issued a statement last April saying it had no plans to require tamper-resistance. So, Purdue sent lobbyists on four occasions to Health Canada officials last year, including a May meeting seeking an explanation for the government's stance. 
As a result, conservative members of parliament, Kevin Sorensen, revived the idea in September with a bill to require all controlled substances be tamper-resistant. But records show Sorensen met with Purdue representatives six days before he reintroduced the bill and spoke with them again two days before it went to second reading in November. Purdue's lobbying illustrates the stakes for drug makers in efforts to curb what policymakers have called North America's biggest public health crisis. Canada's $881 million annual opioid sales are dwarfed by the U.S. market, the biggest in the world. Any action by Canada is likely to attract interest south of the border. Purdue said it was pushing for the rule to improve safety. However, Canadian officials have passed on that proposal and instead are looking at measures that could hurt sales of long-acting opioids, including Purdue's best-selling painkillers. And in medical news, first came Martin Screlly, the brash young pharmaceutical entrepreneur who raised the price of an AIDS treatment by 5,000%. Then Heather Bresch, the CEO of Mylan Pharmaceuticals, who oversaw the price hike for its signature EpiPen to more than $600 for a twin pack, even though its active ingredients cost pennies by comparison. Well now, a small Virginia company called Kaleo is joining their ranks of outrageous price hikes for drugs. The company makes an injector device that is suddenly in demand because of the nation's epidemic use of opioids. Their product is called Evzio, and it is used to deliver a naloxone product, a life-saving antidote to overdoses of opioids. And as demand for Calio's product has grown, the privately held firm has raised its twin pack price to $4,500 from $690 back in 2014. The company is founded by 36-year-old twin brothers, Eric and Evan Edwards. The company first sought to develop an EpiPen competitor thanks to their own food allergies. Now they've taken that model and marketed it for a major public health crisis. Their product is just another auto-injector that delivers an inexpensive medicine. And the cost of generic injectable naloxone, which has been on the market since 1971, has been climbing. A 10-milliliter vial sold by one of the dominant vendors costs close to $150, more than double its price from even a few years ago, and far beyond the production costs of the naloxone chemical. The other common injectable, which comes in a smaller but more potent dose, costs closer to $40, still about double its 2009 cost. So U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill asked Kellyo Pharmaceuticals to justify the more than 550% surge in the price of its device. And she is the second senator to question Envisio's $4,500 price tag. Senator Amy Klobuchar sent Kellyo a letter also earlier this month voicing similar concerns. The concerns over Evzio's price comes at a time when pharmaceutical companies are facing intense scrutiny over price gouging and as lawmakers struggle with the epidemic of opioid abuse. 
Senator McCaskill's letter was signed by 30 other U.S. senators. So a company spokesman acknowledged receipt of the letter from the senators, and they are in communication with them to ensure all questions are to be addressed. Express Script's prescription price index shows continued inflation in the price of medications. The average list price of the most commonly used brand drugs increasing nearly 11% in 2016. Between 2008 to 2016, prices increased nearly 208%. Medications that treat inflammatory conditions and diabetes remain the costliest therapy classes. Employers paid on average over $3,500 per prescription for a medication to treat an inflammatory condition such as rheumatoid arthritis. Humira and Enbrel were major trend drivers for inflammatory class of medications, with unit cost increases between 10 and 18 percent. Despite having more than 15 available therapies in the class, these two medications accounted for approximately 70% of the market share in 2016. Biosimilar competition in this class could significantly ease spending for employers. However, delays in biosimilar availability have limited payers' ability to achieve such results. Spendings on diabetes medications increased 19.4% in 2016, driven by a 14.1% increase in unit costs. Total spending on insulins, which account for 40% of all diabetes spending, increased nearly 10% between 2015 and 2016. In 2016, spending on oncology medications increased nearly 22%, making it the third costliest class. Despite savings from generics, unit costs for oral oncology medications increased 9.6% in 2016. One in five people filled a prescription for pain medication in 2016. Despite a 95% generic fill rate for this class of drugs, spending was driven by just two brand name medications, Lyrica and OxyContin. Pain medications are the fifth most costly class of drugs. While the pharmacy benefit management companies claim credit for holding down drug prices, some are critical of the PBM industry. Three PBMs, Express Scripts, CVS Health, and Optimum RX, a division of United Health Group, control about 70% of the market. The Fortune 500 list gives a sense of their enormous size. United Health Group and CVS Health are numbers 6 and 7 on the list, while Express Scripts shows up at number 22 on the Fortune 500 list of companies. J.P. Morgan Chase, Boeing, and Microsoft all trail Express Scripts on the Fortune list, as do the largest pharmaceutical manufacturers. Critics of the big PBMs say their pricing practices and a lack of transparency are driving up costs and causing insurers to pay inflated prices without knowing it. The alleged tactics include keeping an undisclosed amount of the rebates they negotiate while offering their clients a much smaller cut and 
charging a spread on each prescription that gets processed. But the PBMs say that rebates and spread pricing are agreed upon in the contracts signed by their clients and are very clear about who gets what. But the critics argue the door is open for price gouging without more transparency and if health plan sponsors are not savvy in negotiating those contracts. Ask Spine Surgeons is a weekly series of questions posed by Becker's Spine Review to spine surgeons around the country about clinical business and policy issues affecting spine care. Here are two responses to the question, what are the most exciting spine industry trends that would be expected to see in 2017? One spine surgeon at Texas Back Institute says that spine surgery is an ever-changing landscape. Throughout 2017, he expects that we will continue to see interest in motion-preserving procedures as an alternative to spinal fusion. The field has seen the development and emphasis of several techniques and technologies over the years that are meant to effect neurological decompression while preserving spinal motion. Examples include laminoplasty over laminectomy infusion, cervical and lumbar total disc replacement over ACDF or lumbar fusion, as well as various interlaminar spacers. Some of these have been very successful while others have been less so. In addition to new technical advances, there will also be more research on when fusion surgery is beneficial. For example, in the last several months, two papers were published in the New England Journal of Medicine that investigated the benefits and risks of spinal fusion in addition to decompression for degenerative spondylolisthesis. Throughout 2017, we will likely continue to see an emphasis on trying to avoid spinal fusion surgery when it's appropriate. On a related note, something that the doctors hope to see in the upcoming year is more attention on bone health and osteoporosis. As our population ages, this issue is becoming an increasingly prevalent problem. Early detection and treatment of osteopenia and osteoporosis is key to improving these patients' lives. The founder of the Craniospinal Center of Los Angeles said he was most keyed in on endoscopic spine procedures. He had the opportunity to meet a colleague from South Korea where they are doing some amazing things through a scope. The doctor expects it to become pretty hot in the coming year as we focus on outpatient surgeries. Also, we will likely see more instrumentation being done on an outpatient basis, especially with cervical arthroplasty and interspinous stabilization. Lastly, deformity correction is becoming more and more important in the inpatient setting. He thinks the focus will be on faster and safer surgeries, possibly with robotic assistance. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. 
Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.